In Jesus' name, our wonderful Lamb, meek and mild, almighty and triumphant, dear friends. You know, one of the most uh, well-known, best-selling and famous songs of John Lennon after the Beatles broke up was his great anthem, Imagine, a, a poetic piece of blasphemy that unfortunately is insanely popular and has been uh, copied and, and covered many times and is extremely well-known, including its most blasphemous line, Imagine that there's no heaven. And he tried to get people centered on a this world point of view and basically said, just imagine that there was no religion, nothing worth dying for. Unfortunately, he shows his real contempt for you in that he thinks you're not worth dying for either. Jesus had a diametrically opposite point of view. I think I know where John Lennon got those ideas from because uh, Europe was way ahead of the United States in having its leading philosophers basically either agnostic, where they have no idea whether there's a God or not, or atheists absolutely convinced there wasn't any at all. One of the philosophers that the young, curious John Lennon might have read was the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, a couple of whose lines have become fairly famous. He said, um, in his scorn for the notion of heaven, he said, when I die, I rot. This is all you got. This is all there is. It, we live in a mechanical, materialistic universe, and you yourself are responsible for deriving whatever meaning you wish out of it. But don't wait for any rescue from any God, and you're not going anywhere where you die except down into the worms. He also said, huh, God, if by some remote chance there actually is a God, the first thing I'm going to say to him is, why didn't you show up? Why didn't you reveal yourself? And that is such a mind-boggling thought to me. God has showed up in multiple places. First of all, he has shown up in the world. Only somebody really determined can look at the stunning beauty, complexity, order, pulsing with life. What is life? How can, how can new life come out of seemingly inorganic things? An astonishing string of miracles of brilliant design and invention. And look at it and say, this happened by itself. And really, there's only two kinds of people in the world. One kind of person looks at the Grand Canyon and said, Wow, the Colorado River sure is something, isn't it? Look what the Colorado River did. And then there are people who look at it and say, God, you are amazing. What a canvas you have painted out of rock and sand. Amazing. Thank you for the beauty in my world. A French a brilliant mathematician and scientist named Blaise Pascal was a freakishly intelligent person, blew through school at twice the rate. He was writing books already as a teenager, out of college already, uh, at a time when most people are trying to figure out geometry in their sophomore year. Uh, kind of burned his candle bright through life. He was dead at 39. His name is Blaise Pascal. 
one of the inventors of the first mechanical mathematical calculator, brilliant writer, lived in the 1600s. He became a Christian halfway through his life. And on top of all his scientific and mathematical writings, which are still read today because of the piercing nature of his insights uh, and to acknowledge what the, the building blocks for science and math that he set in place and others have now rested upon him. He wrote this. He wrote a book called My Thoughts, Pensées in French. He said, God is willing to appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart. But he's willing also to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart. In other words, he lets the Bertrand Russells and John Lennons of the world live in their delusion that he doesn't exist. If that's what you want, if you really want to be free from me, if you really do not want to be subject to a God, all right, I'm going to let you have what you want. He, he so regulates the knowledge of himself, Pascal writes, that he's given signs of himself visible to those who seek him, but invisible to those who seek him not. So Pascal had that same dilemma I did. Now, he couldn't have gotten those ideas from me because he lived before me. Maybe I got, I got that idea from him. Or maybe it is the fate of all Christians to wonder what's not to like about our God and how can you say he's given no trace? On top of all of the evidence he's given in nature, he's placed echoes of himself in every human heart. It's called a conscience. And today it always gives me a kind of a smirk and a, a chuckle and a kind of a painful, ironic chuckle to hear how many conferences there are every year on business ethics. Yada, yada, yada. Over and over you hear this jabber about ethics in business. What are ethics in business? In other words, is there really a set of objective standards of human behaviors outside of you that you should be expected to adhere to? What is that? Bertrand Russell says you make up your own rules. The culture we live in is drenched in the idea that you work out your own set of ideals and standards. You have your own truths. You make up your own set of rights and wrongs. How can there be something outside of you if there is no God? And so businesses strain to try to get people to behave, though they don't know why. They call it ethics, but what is that? What if your ethic in your business is collect a whole bunch of people, strike fast, rip them off, dump them, and find some more suckers? Does that sound like a business principle? Sure is. If you have no God at the center, how can you say that's wrong? You have no principles outside of you. And if somebody says, yeah, but that's my creed to live by, rip them off and run, uh, and, and on to the next one. There's a sucker born every minute. My, my mission is to find the next sucker. How can you say that's wrong? I think the concept of trying to talk about business ethics and leaving God out is pointless. It goes in circles and it does not satisfy. The third way in which God reveals himself is Holy Scripture, and Pascal was allowed to meet his God through the pages of Scripture to clarify and amplify what he could see in nature and feel within himself 
Uh, the Bible says that our consciences either clap and cheer for us when we do right or jump on us and beat us up when we do wrong. Pascal finishes his thought, there is enough light for those who desire to see and enough darkness for those who have a contrary disposition. And even then, it doesn't answer the question, why is God's evidence persuasive to some and not to others? Why do some people hear the words of Scripture and say, talk to me, Lord? Thank you for rescuing me. And other people say, what a bunch of outmoded claptrap. I don't know. In fact, I'm not even sure God knows. When you read the prophet Isaiah, for instance, God achingly pours out his lament over why his children, that he's lavished so many gifts and so much attention and invested so much in. How could you blow me off like the way you've been doing? How could you turn away from me? How could you give me, you know, the talk to the hand? How could you put up the hand to me and say, uh, get lost, we want to go our own way? I think even God is baffled by unbelief. And you know what? It's just another thing I can't lay it out for you today to help you understand it. I doubt if you understand it either. But you need to see that it's going on. And if the Lord has placed faith in your heart, that may be the most heartfelt thank you you can give today because everything else good in your life unfolds from the fact that when God has revealed himself, you can see him. Today, you and I are going to take another peek at the throne of God. Here in church, this is like a little bit of heaven, isn't it? We use costly building materials. I mean, none of you is going to build a gigantic wall of glass like that in your house. Well, you'd never do that. Nobody does that. But we are extravagant in the investments we make to make a little bit of heaven in the house we've dedicated to his name here. And so peeking from uh, today again from the book of Revelation at what God really looks like is going to help your faith to get stronger. And you're going to, it's like anti-Bertrand Russell medication, uh, like, like a vaccine to stiffen you up, to fight in a crazy world that is full of agnostics who are trying to take over the universe and unfortunately have made significant progress. We are going up a down escalator in our culture today, my dear friends, and don't let Satan steal what God has given you. Today, the last of the little meditations on the ordinary of the liturgy, the ordinary are the unchanging poems that are part of the full meal. Yeah, I know we don't use the full meal every Sunday. That's right, you don't want a full meal three times a day, do you? Uh, I don't, you we could, we'd all be 450 pounds if we did. Um, it, the full meal is more enjoyable when you pace it a little bit with some snacky type things and a little salad here and there with a little chicken on the top, isn't it so? Uh, so we don't always every Sunday use the full meal, but when we do, the last utterance out of our mouths before receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Jesus body and blood himself is we sing the song of the Lamb to him in Latin, Agnus Dei. And we might as well all learn those wonderful words so we can talk about it together. As I mentioned last week, the, the songs 
and procedures of the full meal, the communion liturgy, remind us of, of a holy week. The Sanctus is an echo of Palm Sunday, a jubilant shout of praise. The um, words of institution are a reminder of Maundy Thursday when Jesus first gave that precious gift. Do this as I'm doing it now in remembrance of me, he said. The Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God's song, is Good Friday uh, in our minds. The slaughter of Jesus, a miserable, pathetic, horrible, shocking sight, yet which has become the greatest news that the human race can ever hear, that the blood of the Lamb was shed to make the payment, the ultimate payment, the complete payment, the free payment for the sins of the world which includes you. And then the distribution as we receive the host and the wine is Easter all over again because you're not just getting relics of a dead man, you are getting the living body and blood of the living Christ which makes you alive. It is life, it is resurrection. And just uh, as you are coming back uh, from, uh, and coming back to your seat, you have you're pulsing again with new, new spiritual life, new confidence that God loves me, that I matter. I have a place in his world. I have a place in his kingdom. Wherever I go, I'm going with a tailwind. Wherever I go, I know he's got his hands under me and his angels over me. I know I am loved. I know I am blessed. I know I am immortal and I can take whatever beating life will give me because I'm already a winner. So that's Holy Week all over again. Last week, we uh, read the first uh, chunks of the first half of St. John's view of the throne of God. Today, I'd like to cherry-pick a little bit from the second half of that. Really, chapters 4 and 5 kind of go together in Revelation. So take your Bible and open up to Revelation chapter 5. And this is, uh, the center of this is a set of scrolls that symbolically represent what's going to be happening in the future. Uh, if I were John, I wouldn't be so quick to want to know what's in there because it was uh, mostly bad news. There is, are some frightful nightmares that are going to be on display, and they are described. Uh, Revelation, you know, is not linear. It's circular. Uh, if you want to get the full scoop, make sure you check out Pastor Lyra's Bible studies. But basically, it's, it is four different movies, but all with the same plot, and they're all based around sevens. And they're frightfully bad news for the people of the earth, immense suffering, um, and it's judgment that the human race has brought upon it. But to sustain us in the middle of these four cycles, these four movies, all with the same plot, uh, the, the rebellion of the human race, the terrible punishments from heaven God flings upon them, uh, the, the con condemnation and the flinging out of heaven of uh, Satan and his demons, the way that they're tormenting the people of the earth, the final judgment. These are all um, hard stories in you and I living in the middle of a life full of sickness and war and crime and violence, hopelessness, suicide, despair, all the other stuff that makes our life so hard, makes our life so gloomy, gives people such fear and uh, steals people's joy and crushes their hopes 
and optimism, then God lets us see the serenity of his throne. There are little interludes where we get to see that all is well in heaven and that we shall be there soon. We got to keep hearing that message over and over. Do not fall in love with this place. We're camping here. You are not home yet. Travel light. Stay ready. Be ready. Don't fall in love with this broken place. God has something way better to give you. Now at the center of chapter 5 is the father seated on his throne and next to him standing there at the throne is a lion and a lamb. Here's another cool example of um, of paradox in scripture. You know, you hear me talk about the paradoxes of scripture all the time. Is Jesus, is the, is the right metaphor for Jesus a lion or a lamb? Yes or no? <laughs> yes to both. Yes to both. He is both ferociously strong and gentle and meek. Didn't open his mouth. Isaiah says, a lamb led to the slaughter, and he didn't use his almighty power to break away. And yet, it's not the lion that is the dominant image in chapter 5, but the lamb image. And all of the angels gather around, led by the four living creatures, as you heard uh, me suggest last week, these are the seraphim, the burning ones, or cherubim, where God left the definitions of these angel leaders a little vague intentionally, but they are the the senior command. They are the living creatures, the 24 elders representing all the believers who've died in the Old Testament and New, and also uh, as placeholders for you and me. We're not there yet. But these 24 leaders have gathered all of the saints around, and there is a three stanza hymn that is a just magnificent hymn to the Lamb. When we sing the Agnus Dei in church, we, we kind of center on the Good Friday aspect of the Lamb, and that's really appropriate because we come penitentially, we come with our heads hanging a little bit, realizing how expensive our salvation was. Here's the thing. Salvation is free to you, but very expensive to Jesus. It came at frightful cost, and here's kind of the heavy thought. That's what happened to Christ on the cross is what should happen to you and to me. This is what we deserve. This is how bad sin really is. So the Lamb of God song uh, in the liturgy is kind of heavy. It is sweet. It, It is like a lament for the cost of our salvation, what it cost Jesus. But singing to the Lamb also can be jubilant. And the Christian church has added Uh, in their liturgies, the canticles, they're called, which uh, has some jubilant lamb songs. And to give a little balance, uh, we're going to read one of those jubilant lamb songs, that the lamb who was slain is alive again. Stanza one of the song of the saints and angels uh, is in the second half of verse nine, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. So the triumphant Christ who was slain has arisen, who was humble is now exalted. Uh, There's a paradox for you. And his worshipers in heaven say, you, we can't open the scrolls, you know the future. You affect and 
govern the future. Why? Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for God. You and I have been bought at a price. Bertrand Russell, don't say that God has not revealed himself. The testimony is here. It is now before you and now belongs to you. What diversity in heaven, every tribe, language, people, and nation. Why? And here, here's a, a stupendous concept. I'm going to leave a little air right now so that you clear your thoughts of whatever clutters in there because this is like the most important thing that I've got to say to you this morning. So what? Like, what's the point of the dead lamb slain for the sins of the world? Here's the point. Here's the purpose. You ready? You've made them to be kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth and in heaven, for that matter. Royal priests, you are heavenly royalty. You are priests commissioned by God with a spiritual mission to absorb and enjoy his word and then to pass it on in your life, transparently letting God's grace shine right through you as though you're a pane of glass and the glorious sunshine goes right through you. You are the brokers and sharers of the heavenly riches of heaven as God's priests. You are allowed and invited and even commanded to communicate directly with God. And the only broker you need is Christ himself because you have priestly access to your heavenly father who is now your daddy. Isn't that amazing? And you will be guaranteed of that as you receive the very body crucified for you and the very blood poured out for you, blood from a lamb who wants to spend heaven with you. I looked, I heard the voice of many angels, so the crowd keeps gathering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. That's the largest word in Greek. Uh, there is no word in Greek for million. So the only, uh, at least in ancient times, so the, the only way John could tell a number that was bigger than a thousand was ten, he had to give a math problem, 10,000 times 10,000. All you nerds out there can figure out what power uh, is in the number of the angels. And they sang the worthy song. This is, this is uh, you know, of the, the lamb songs in Christendom, there are the sweet, sad ones, and there's the worthy, jubilant ones. This is the worthy jubilant and worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength those he gets from his father honor glory and praise these he gets from you so put your back into it when you are singing for the lamb is worthy and then every creature on heaven and earth and under the earth uh, every creature not just all the people but all creation now now the people gather around and there is all of heaven, all of the universe now is focused on its creator, not groaning under slavery of the creator who grinds them under his thumb, but jubilant that they are now able to achieve their purpose by a happy, joyful relationship with someone who made the universe for them to live in. God didn't need the created universe. You and I need it. Every creature gathers before him to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, 
be praise and honor and glory and power. From us, give it up to our Lord. The four living creatures spoke a Hebrew word, amen, uh, from the Hebrew word amuna, which means that's the truth. And the elders fell down, not because they tripped or slipped on a banana peel. They fell down to make themselves small with their bodies to send a message to God that you are great. And then, of course, he lifts them back up. You can't see it probably because it's a little too small, but if you look closely when you come up to the altar to receive the supper, you will see this beautiful ciborium. It was made about 120 years ago. And on the top is the Lamb, a representation of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a reminder that as we uh, sing the great songs of the divine service and we come to receive the meal, we are receiving Christ to live within us, guarantee our forgiveness, sustain us in the, the storms of our lives, to build up our spirits, to help us fight back against cynicism and apathy, to fight against the culture around us that is so full of atheism, uh, driving God out from every possible part of public life. This will sustain you to hang on and not let go, not let Satan steal it from you. To be grateful and proud to be the brother of the one who gave his life for you. Here is the amazing takeaway from this amazing story. Jesus thinks you are that valuable to do what he did on Good Friday so that you and I could live with him forever. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.